every emotional experience has two components. One is the the sensing, the, the emotional feeling, uh, consciously conscious awareness, and the other one is the emotion. Motion means movement or the action that your body does, your autonomic nervous system implements, and so every time you have an emotion, you have that em that emotional this autonomic nervous system part to it, which essentially sends down signals to the gut, to other organs as well, to the heart, but the gut is particularly uh, interesting in this respect. And in the gut are the microbes. So the microbes get that signal as well. We know that, uh, for example, one autonomic nervous system mediator, neurotransmitter, norepinephrine, can act on microbes directly, changing their gene expression, their behavior, so every time you have this emotion, not only do you change your gut function and the environment in which the microbes live in, but you also directly talk to the microbes. Collective Insights is a voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Welcome to Collective Insights. This is James Schmachtenberger, CEO and co-founder of Qualia. I appreciate your support of our podcast, Collective Insights, and I encourage you to try the formula that launched our company, Qualia Mind. Qualia Mind promotes life-changing enhancements to your focus, energy, and overall mental wellness. This podcast interviews world-renowned experts on crucial aspects of mental wellness, such as sleep, exercise, and mindset training. But if you also want to add the life-changing brain nourishment to your diet, try Qualia Mind at neurohacker.com. You can use code James for an extra 15% off. That's Qualium Mind with code James at neurohacker.com. And I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hi, this is Dr. Greg Kelly, Senior Director of Product Development at Neurohacker Collective. And today I'll be the host of this episode of Collective Insights. Today we have with us world renowned gastroenterologist, neuroscientist, and best selling author of The Mind Gut Connection and The Gut Immune Connection, Dr. Emmer and Meyer. Dr. Meyer is one of the pioneers and leading researchers in the bidirectional communication within the brain-gut microbiome system. This has wide-ranging applications in both intestinal and brain disorders. Dr. Meyer, welcome to the show today. Nice to be on the show, um, Greg. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Great. Well, I've read your book and um, reread it recently, so I'm excited to share what you have with our audience. So um, I, I want to just jump right in. There's a lot to cover today. and um, you know, your your experience is so vast. I, I think when I looked on PubMed, there's more than 200 citations with your name. So we have a lot to cover for our audience. So with that, one of the things I wanted to start off is just how our gut microbiome is shaped both during pregnancy and early life, and then the, the impact that has not only on the gut microbiome, but the brain. So can we start there? Yeah, so when I wrote my book, which is now the first book more than six years ago, the main emphasis was on the early colonization of the um, infant's gut with the maternal microbiota and their metabolites. So when the baby went through the birth canal, the exposure to you know, vaginal fluids and also some fecal fluids um, provided that, that uh, first inoculation. And this is the period where uh, the, the very early phase of the microbiome where there's no such thing as what we now call colonization resistance. So whatever the the micro the, the gut is exposed to in terms of microbes will, will stay there. Um, in the meantime, we know a lot more. I mean, this, this early programming really starts um, during pregnancies. So uh, the, the fetus doesn't have um, doesn't have any microbes living in it. There was some controversy about this, but I think we've come to the conclusion now. Um, but there's the maternal microbiome, and that is influenced by a lot of things that the mother is going through, being metabolic health, diet, uh, obesity, stress, any other chronic illness. That will all affect the maternal microbiome, and we know a lot about this. And the, the metabolites that are being produced um, and the low-grade inflammation that's happening in the gut, of, for example, an obese mother uh, will tr will cross the placenta and reach the fetal the fetal brain, and has a major influence on brain development. 
then um, during birth, as I said, so is the exposure to the maternal microbiome. Um, and the, the, the very good studies that have shown that, for example, chronic stress, um, um, or I should also include in this very importantly, um, antibiotic exposure uh, of the mother. And so in animal models, we know that even a one-time exposure of a of a of a pregnant mother has an influence on on the maternal microbiome, and then you know which is transferred onto the uh, uh, onto the the baby. Then in the um, the postnatal phase, there's clearly an important influence of the mother as well. Um, there are these um, human milk oligosaccharides. These are very large molecules in breast milk, um, and these molecules are not really designed as nutrition for the baby, but uh, there's such large molecules that can't be absorbed in the small intestine. They migrate down into the colon and are a major factor, again, in shaping the baby's microbiome. So the duration of the um, of breastfeeding has an important influence uh, on uh, you know on, on the baby's development and in summary you know why do we have all these different steps of programming there's many examples of that that nature really uh, aims to program um the optimal the most adaptable um phenotype that and 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 the most appropriate phenotype for a world that the mother has been experiencing so nature assumes that that's going to be the same for the infant. If it's a very stressful environment, then you know the infant is the the the, the child is equipped primarily for a stressful world, and and that all works worked really well. In the past, was highly adaptive. Um, you know, has has led to the reproductive success of uh, of, of of humans. But in the meantime, because the environment has changed so dramatically in terms of the diet, the health of the mother, um, you know, um, affecting differentially women from different socioeconomic backgrounds, uh, just some of these influences are, are very negative, um, very high infant mortality in, in, in um, for example, in African-Americans. So all this is kind of has changed and that has affected the health or the infant's microbiome. And the, the earliest influence for these metabolites of the mother affect brain development. So the entire brain-gut microbiome interactions is programmed both on the brain side and on the microbiome side by these early influences. So a very important phase of development. Well, the, um, you use a term in your first book, microbe speak. And so the way I would think of this, and I'm, I know I'm oversimplifying this drastically, would be a, a similar to us learning human language that, you know, early experience is when our brain's most plastic and the best opportunity to learn and be able to speak as a native in multiple languages. And after that window is closed, for many of us, it becomes a lot more difficult. And so the way I think of it, and you certainly correct me if I'm wrong, is that the microbes speak, what our gut microbiome is going to speak natively to our brain is just disproportionately largely affected both in that prenatal birth and then early infancy period. And so the more we can do to set the stage to have great communication, then the better we are. Yeah. And that, you know, that microbiome speak, as I explained in my first book, it was something is 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 really ancient, you know, because the microbes have been around for billions of years. So the dominant life form on on Earth, uh, the inhabited uh, oceans of the world, uh, by themselves without any animals uh, around, and they've accumulated, you know, millions of genes, many of which we don't really know yet what they do, but many of them are the basis for this language. So they they learn the language to communicate with each other primarily. Um, and in evolution, ultimately, we humans, you know, have have sort of adopted the same language first in our in our gut, in our enteric nervous system. So the neurotransmitters that are there are the same words that the microbes used to, you know, have have used for a long time. And then from the enteric nervous system, the same words were transferred to the brain. Uh, so. Yeah, there's there's two kinds of programming. There's this long time evolutionary programming, and then there's individual programming. 
um, based on the mother's experiences and what she hands over to the um, to the infant. One thing I should say, there's also the postnatal period. So this is where, uh, you know, breastfeeding comes in. And so, I mean, I, I, I think science and medicine is really focused on the nutrition aspect of, of, of breastfeeding. Um, but there's also something in, in, in breast milk, which are these human milk oligosaccharides, <clears throat> very large molecules, complex carbohydrates that, um, um, that cannot be absorbed in the small intestine. So <clears throat> they're targeted, they're, they move down unabsorbed into the colon, uh, the, the end of the small intestine, and um, <clears throat> they play a major role in the, in the postnatal programming and nurturing of the microbiome. So the longer that source, that supply of human milk oligosaccharide lasts, <clears throat> the more profound that, that influence is. And there's, you know, there's many influences that probably go into these human milk oligosaccharides genetic on the one side, um, and probably environmental on the other side, that they're really, you know, a chronically stressed mother probably produces different, a, a, a different combination of these molecules than somebody who's not chronically stressed. Um, yeah, it is amazing when you think about it, you know, how how sophisticated this this programming has been designed by, by evolution, you know, so. Yeah, I think the... Um... Would it be fair to use the term prebiotic for the human milk oligosaccharides? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I think the way I think of it, and I think you mentioned this specifically in your book, like these are this is food in breast milk for our gut microbiota, not food for the baby. Exactly. Uh, exactly. So. You also you you also you know mentioned something earlier um, about the Yanomami. So I've 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 had this experience. Very fortunate. I think it was in the first year of medical school uh, during a semester break that I was invited to participate in a documentary film expedition to the uh, upper Orinoco River in Venezuela. And so we we lived with the Yanomami, a more or less uncontacted tribe of the Yanomami um, for some six weeks and observed and filmed everything. Unfortunately, my medical knowledge was minimal at the time. Uh, the microbiome science did not exist. Um, and so I didn't, I was just a a astute observer, not somebody who had something in mind that I wanted to see. But one thing that was obvious, um, so, so in terms of this early development is, um, so I, I witnessed one of these um, births uh, of, of a Yanomami baby in the middle of the night where the, the woman squatted in the middle of the, the village square um, and had a banana leaf under her separating that that baby from the dirt of, of the village square. So that baby was exposed from day one, from minute one to, you know, an enormous number of of microbes from the animals that were running around there, the pet animals that the, the Yanomami children had. And um, so that was one, clearly very different from the sterile environments of uh, delivery rooms in the U.S. where, you know, the, the women are treated, the, the, the mothers are treated with prophylactic antibiotics. So none of this existed there. The, the second thing was, you know, they, they are hunter-gatherers, so the women run around most of the day collecting food, um, mainly plant-based food, um, in the in, in in the forest, and and they always carry their infants uh, with them. They, they have this you know contraption that they always have these babies from day one are with the mothers. Um, also, again, exposed to all kinds of things in the in, in the jungle, running around in the jungle. Um, but also this period lasts two years. So they nurse them for two years before they, you know, gradually transfer them to uh, bananas and platanos. And <clears throat> so a very different early phase of that postnatal um, programming. And it's obvious from all the things that I told you now about the Yanomami, when they studied their gut microbiome, um, it turned out they had the most diverse and rich um, um, microbial composition ecosystem of anybody in the world. Um, really, both in terms of their 
you know, largely plant-based diet as adults. I mean, they do eat some animals, but not in abundance as 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 we do. Um, but also, but because of this whole process of early of early programming. Yes, yeah, so in retrospect, I mean, I wish I could go back there. Um, my, I just learned that my um, friend and somebody I admire tremendously, uh, Dr. Martin Blazer, um, has actually just gone back there with his wife, Gloria Dominguez, um, and um, just came out of the jungle uh, today <laughs> wow. because because they they revisited them and um, also I mean this may not be pertinent for this conversation but. I followed this whole Yanomami story closely. In Brazil, they're threatened by extinction. In in, in Brazil, they're completely dependent on government um, uh, support with food support and um, this mal uh, malnourished children. And um, whereas in Venezuela, based on you know what what Dr. Blazer told me, um, they seem to be pretty much intact. You know, they they live the way they have. So it shows you how two different, um, how this lifestyle this, and this early life exposure has been so beneficial for the ones living in on the Venezuelan side of the border, as opposed to, you know, the likely extinction on the other side of the border of, of the same people. Wow, tragic. And I, I before we move on to the next thing, I just want to summarize and um, make sure I have this, you know, generally correct, but the general idea at this point among, you know, people in your field would be that that early um, lifestyle, so pre-pregnancy, pregnancy, delivery, the first two years is critical for almost shaping the gut microbiome in a way that says, okay, this is the environment you're going to live in, and we want to make sure you're appropriately exposed so you can be optimized for that particular environment. And the modern environment is vastly different. So we get a vastly different gut microbiota, um, essentially range of, of languages that, that speaks and communicates. And I, I know I saw one study, um, I believe it was small, seven people, a few children, a few adults. And I don't know if it was the Yanomami, but they put them into an indigenous area and measured skin, gut, and maybe there was another microbiome they measured. And the children were much more plastic. These were children coming from a Western environment, but um, the skin was the most plastic to change. Mm -hmm. The gut was the least plastic and the, the adults were you know, far less plastic. And I think at least the way I think about it is, you know, our gut microbiome says, you know, I live in California, was born near the Boston area, were um, optimized for that particular environment. And I'm unlikely ever to have the microbiome of uh, indigenous Yanomami, and that's okay. Mine can do a good job, but there's um, there's windows of plasticity. And for you know um, an adult, as you mentioned, breastfeeding is one of the best ways to shape the gut microbiota to thrive. No, this is correct. And you know, one one thing I I, I do want to mention also, <clears throat> um, so. You know, our our human genes change very slowly. I mean, it takes thousands of years before they before they change. The microbiota can change rapidly to any environmental change. So as long as you know the Yanomami live in the jungle, they will maintain that that diverse and you know uh, rich microbial ecosystem. When they go, some of them have gone to Caracas to the capital. Um, and they become obese and they develop the same diseases that we have. So the microbiome of these people rapidly changes in a way to adapt to this new lifestyle. You know, there's, there's even indications that within 48 hours it can adapt. What, what can't adapt is, is our gut and our immune system and our metabolic system. So you get this mismatch between microbes that were ideally adapted to the to that, to that um, original lifestyle and to the original, you know, human makeup of these people, when they go into a different environment, the microbes rapidly adapt. Our genes do not adapt. This big mismatch, which leads to, you know, immune activation and all these chronic diseases. Wow. Okay. Well, we we had touched a bit on microbes, speak, and you had mentioned that they were speaking between themselves long before. You know, our brain was using these compounds. So, can we talk a bit about some of these compounds that are used um, for the gut microbiome brain communication? 
Yes, it, I mean, there's obviously, you know, thousands of, of, of metabolites. Um, so when we look at this, like an untargeted metabolic uh, metabolite analysis will give thousands of compounds, many of which we don't know what they do. Um, and so, you know, research has focused on, 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 on the ones that have homology with, with human neurotransmitters, for example, you know, this. There's tryptophan, there's serotonin, there's uh, the indoles, there's um, GABA, this inhibitory neurotransmitter. Uh, so there's 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 many substances that are almost identical to the human neurotransmitters that are produced in the gut. If they if if these compounds or how many of these compounds make it to the brain um, is questionable, particularly. Do they make it to the brain in a concentration that's required to stimulate the receptor systems for these compounds in, in the brain? But they do act locally in the gut on the enteric nervous system, which is in some ways also homologous to our central nervous system. And they can influence contractions, um, secretions, all the gut functions. And um, they can also communicate on sensory nerve fibers of the the vagal the, the, the vagus nerve, which you know uh, goes down to the gut, innovates um, different cell types, like cell types in the in the gut that contain hormones, like the satiety hormones. The vagus nerve is always sort of in contact with them. They also innovate um, cells, the main storage houses or factories for serotonin. The vagus nerve is right there and has receptors that when these, these hormonal cells release their content, it acts on the vagus nerve, on different branches of vagus nerve, which then are carried up into the brainstem <clears throat> and high up into the brain. There's an, it's an active field of research um, how these, for example, how this complicated vagal signaling really influences, you know, um, functions at the brainstem level and then higher up into the cortical system. It's, it's, it's not that one substance really causes one particular emotion. You know, it's, it's kind of a simplistic way of saying it. It's always in, in this area, multiple components interact with each other to create some, some kind of a, a, a pattern which then results in a particular uh, a brain response. So yeah, I'm oh, sorry to interrupt. I think of, um, I think it was Candace Pert had the molecules of emotion or however, but the way I often interpreted that was, it was like a soup or stew, right? There was all of these together and that particular recipe was going to create a response. So thinking only of serotonin or only one ingredient in the, the soup is maybe misplaced. It's the whole meal of all these interacting things. Yeah. I mean, there are situations, particularly right now, you know, with the, <clears throat> With the new medications to uh, for type two diabetes that also they're being used primarily for for weight loss, <clears throat> that um, that essentially mimic the mimics the signals that come from 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 these gut cells containing satiety hormones. So the satiety hormones in the gut are the the, the release is greatly influenced by the by the microbes, by the metabolites, by short chain fatty acids, by secondary bile acids. Um, so they have a big say in that, um, you know, how much of that, that satiety signal reaches the, uh, the brain. So, you know, in our society, obviously we're after patentable uh, targets and, and and mechanisms. So this particular mechanism obviously is is quite dominant. You know, these these new drugs they work seem to be working well without many side effects, at least at the moment, and. Um, so that's a little bit of an exception, you know, that some 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 molecules dominate uh, other influences. Um, but but in general, I, I think it's a it's a combinatorial way of communicating that you don't use one messenger, you know. Yeah, and just for our audience, the um the satiety drugs that Dr. Meyer is speaking of, I believe would be the GLP one agonist that have yeah. um, been um, widely now starting to be embraced for obesity management. So um, the other thing I thought that, so I guess one of the, um, so with one of your studies, it was, um, I'll read the title so our audience will know it, but cognitive behavioral therapy for irritable bowel syndrome induces bidirectional alterations. 
in the brain gut microbiome axis associated with gastrointestinal symptom improvement. So I'd like to talk a little bit about that, but serotonin was one of the things that I believe in that study predicted the response to the cognitive behavioral therapy. And by that, I mean the the serotonin like the gut microbiota was making. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that was, was an interesting study because it, so we looked at, you know, we looked at, at brain mechanisms, we looked at subjective symptoms and we looked at the gut microbiome and what we found, so cognitive behavioral therapy, we, we know it influences the brain, it doesn't influence directly the gut microbes, obviously. Um, so both the, the response of the brain to a cognitive behavioral therapy could be influenced by the exposure to microbial signals, but so that could predict, you know, who who will respond. Not not everybody responded to this therapy. Uh, when we compared the responders with the non-responders, there were certain microbial um, features, including you know the serotonin uh, levels that kind of uh, were greater in the responders that predicted a a, a responder status. And then there was also an interesting thing when the when we looked at the responders, their microbial composition um, changed with successful uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. So there was this these bidirectional signals. Um, we thought this would really be a, a you know long sought after causal <clears throat> so relationship that gives you the causal relationship between microbes and the brain. It gave it to us partially, you know, that we really saw that was this influence was in a in a bidirectional way. Um, but it definitely was a proof of concept that if you change something at the brain level, it will affect with the, the response to that is predicted by the gut microbiome. And also if you respond to it, your 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 microbes will change. Not only the brain will change, but also your microbes will change. It's it's the first. We have another study ongoing that hopefully will clarify this further. But <clears throat> it's these attempts to really um, develop translationally relevant or you know relevant translations of the many mechanistic animal studies that we have. So most most of the most impressive um, you know research comes out of these mouse studies where you can manipulate everything from the homogeneity of the mice that are being examined to the uh, to the environment, to their food, to um, you know, to the exposure to the to a stressor or, or to some interventions. So all these things we can't really do in, in in humans. So it's very it's been very difficult to actually translate the findings that are so intriguing. And um, so so many people have jumped ahead and said, okay, when one of these mouse studies comes out, we can say, okay, um, the microbiome. Um, you know, play a significant role in autism spectrum. But at this point, this is mainly determined from these mouse studies, you know, and this will change over time. I think they will, you know, it's also a funding situation. A lot more money goes into these animal studies than into human studies. Um, and the human studies, because you need a large number of subjects, are much more expensive to do than mouse studies where you can see an effect on kind of very small sample size. I think the other thing too that complicates this field is that, you know, one, the brain's crazy complicated, but if we start talking about the gut microbiota, there's, I think you mentioned in your book, there's roughly a thousand different species of gut bacteria that most of us will have. And they're making, as you just mentioned, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of metabolites, including you know, all the neurotransmitters that our audience would have heard of, you know, the serotonins, the GABA, the dopamine, the acetylcholine, you know, the, but all kinds of other things that are intermediate between that. And, you know, all of this is constantly bi-directionally, as you just mentioned in your study, you change something in the brain, it changes then the microbiota portfolio in the gut, so to speak, but the metabolites as well. You change something there, it also, you know, shapes the brain. So it just makes it, you know, I can't even imagine how complicated to come up with things other than saying, okay, we see this pattern and this pattern gives us, you know, this thing that we may then um, infer. But I think I often, what I see in influencers are that 
genres, they'll see something and oversimplify it to the point where it's lost, you know, really all of its predictive value. Yeah, this is the big problem in this field. You know, um, I mean, I didn't know this being completely isolated in my scientific world and, and clinical world. But ever since I've sort of expanded into the, you know, the more public domain and the social media, you encounter what a lot of the, you know, the influencers do. I mean, as I said, they they pick one study published in published in Nature in a mouse model or in a zebrafish and expand it inappropriately to a human conclusion, you know, which is um, which is very exciting. And, you know, that this is what people would like to read. Um, but it's it's just not, you know, not the way that we um, gain further knowledge and really develop um, actionable interventions. Well, and I, I guess getting going back to my language analogy, right? It, it's not that there's, you know, 10 different languages that the gut microbiome is speaking, right? It's, you know, dialects within dialects within languages that shift, you know, as soon as we change our environment. So I think, like, I tend to try to think in complex systems, right, that, um, like an ecosystem, we'll hopefully talk a bit more about that. But the nice thing about thinking in that systems approach, you don't have to micromanage a system to get it to respond well. In many ways, it's making sure it has the right resources and leaving alone to do its job. It'll figure out a lot of the rest. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's what you mentioned in the, the early work with shaping our gut microbiota. That gives us whatever our our most unique ecosystem and the one we're probably going to be best adapted to. And if we do a lot of, you know, things that indigenous people would have done to thrive in their world, it'll set our, our gut ecosystem up to thrive even in our world. Yeah. Yeah. The thing is, you know, if we could go back and I mean, obviously it's not it's never going to happen, but if you could go back, you know, and, and, and there have been a few examples of anthropologists who lived with the Yanomami. One actually forgot his name, um, married a Yanomami woman and lived there and had children and lived with them for a while. And then uh, <clears throat> most likely he's, you know, got microbes adapted to that to that lifestyle. But the issue is <clears throat> there's also this extinction of of of, of strains and, and and species. Um, that has happened in our world. So for this anthropologist, my guess, and I don't know if he ever did his his uh, his microbiome analysis, that he didn't even have some of the strains anymore because he had grown up in, in I, I think, I mean, somewhere in the US, forgot which city, but growing up and being born and having gone through all this, what we talked about, this early programming, he didn't even have a lot of these microbes anymore that the Yanomami had. So even for him living this lifestyle would not restore a, a Yanomami type microbiome, you know, because it just doesn't have all the players. Um, yeah, I think what I, my understanding is that like any ecosystem, once um, the organisms have kind of staked out their niche, they're hard to displace, right? They've, they've adjusted to that. They've both will compete for the space and the food supply. So it's hard for then a new thing to take up residence there. Yeah, it's it's a phenomenon called colonization resistance, you know, which is a good thing, obviously, because otherwise our microbiome would constantly change when we travel and whatever. On the other hand, it's become a major obstacle with these attempts to do fecal microbial transplants for for human diseases. So that approach works well. As you know, for C. difficile colitis, where most of the native ecosystem has been wiped out, so there's there is no colonization resistance left. But it doesn't work for for most of the other diseases where it's been tried, because even though these diseases may have a compromised microbiome, it's still a pretty stable ecosystem that will not let other others come in and and take over. Well, one of the things that I wanted to make sure we covered, because when I was in practice, I had you know, somewhat of a more of a mind-body slant to how I saw things. And it was um, one of the things that I really appreciated about your book is it seemed like in your experience, having worked with many patients over the years, that you had evolved a similar, maybe already had it. But I wanted to just give a quote for our audience and then use that to piggyback into something. So the quote that caught my eye was, 
I've seen many patients with complex, seemingly unexplainable symptoms. And one of the important lessons I've learned is to listen to their stories. And so I was wondering if you could share a bit more about that, um, because the stories patients told me when I was in practice often were, were incredible clues to help them improve their situation. Yeah, I would say, you know, I've been uh, incredibly thankful to my patients for providing me <clears throat> this information that basically has been dismissed by many of my colleagues that do not have that that perspective. Um, and 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 some of these stories are kind of seem outlandish that, you know, from a typical medical perspective, you wouldn't you wouldn't think this makes any sense, but um I mean, some simple things, you know, um, like for uh, for example, this um, this this question that I that I've always used: uh, Have you had a happy childhood? You know, which um, so many of my colleagues think early, they don't want to get into early life um, experiences because it gets into sexual abuse and they don't know how to deal with it, but. I mean, sexual abuse is a very small portion of these early life experiences, you know. Um, but if you ask that non-compromising question, have you had a happy childhood? I would say two-thirds of my patients, they either would give an answer right away or they would think for a minute and say, actually, when I think about it, no, you know, I, I did not. <clears throat> and then that opens up, you know, stories that of of uh, situ and, and and situations that we know in the meantime from research play an important role um i mean also things about um you know what's going on um in their current relationship in their current lives um which is also a very common reason why people would make a decision to see me at this point uh, they um they stuck with a frust frustrating Work situation, difficulties with their partner, recently got divorced. Um, so there's there's many of these stories that uh, would not come up in a in a in a in a typical medical history taking, or it would just be under social, um, you know, social factors, uh, but not really as 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 a key to understand what's going on with this patient. And um, another one, for example. A lot of people would would come to me with this with this problem that they have food intolerances, you know, uh, that they can't um, that, that, that the symptoms flare up when they when when they eat anything. Well, what I've learned is if you ask the right questions, often typical story. I think I mentioned this in my book as well. So the the, the business executive downtown LA that um, when he eats his lunch in his office. Um, where he knows where the bathroom is, he has absolutely no problems. He never has any GI side effects. If he has to go to a business meeting to a restaurant that he's not familiar with and he doesn't know where the bathroom is, he will develop his symptoms already driving to that restaurant. And that's so this um, this fear of you know fear of foods or this projection um, what 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 may happen. Um, you know, it's also called catastrophizing or uh, prediction error. There's many reasons for that. But this is a very important concept. And for example, cognitive behavioral therapy deals with that prediction error that, you know, gets rid of this, this exaggerated negative prediction of what's going to happen. So it's not the food sensitivity of that person. It's really how is the calculations that his brain makes um, what, what's going to happen in relation to food. And so these are just a couple of examples, but there's many that I would say have a, have a repertoire of five to maximally 10 questions that lets me go through everything else without getting distracted. And I get a very good snapshot of what's going on, what's driving the symptoms of that patient. I just think, at least reading your book, but even now more talking to you on this or in this conversation, it just strikes me like, wow, this is amazing. He's just not treating the symptoms; he's treating the person and the the person's then stories and, and um, you know things that are then subsequently impacting it. So that's brilliant. And some of these stories, I have to say, you know, um, I guess as a physician, you're not supposed to really get involved emotionally, and but I mean. It's, I've heard some of the most amazing stories from from patients that 
you know, I mean, I wish I'd written them all down, but I could write a book about that. Um, but I selected a few for that, you know, the mind cloud connection. And, and, and then what happened after that, that new patients came to me with the book in hand and they would say, I'm patient so-and-so on page 55 of, of your book. Can you tell me more about it? You know, so <laughs> that became a very typical uh, scenario. Okay, I think just for our audience, the a key thing, at least I took away from your book, was just, again, this idea that we could store emotions in our gut almost from early life experiences, things, you know, maybe more recent, things ongoing now. And that, you know, when we often think of emotions, we're thinking of, you know, like our heart racing and other things, but anything we're feeling, our gut microbiota is feeling because we share our common language. Yeah, and that topic is is, is also a fascinating topic that... Um, you know, there's, there's there's two prominent people that have influenced my thinking a lot, and I respect them tremendously, uh, Antonio Damasio and um, um, Bud Craig, um, a PhD scientist who spent his entire career on 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 the biology of emotions uh, um, and regions in the brain, the circuits in the brain. And so the concept that came out of this is that that every emotional experience has two components one is the the sensing the the emotional feeling uh, consciously conscious awareness and the other one is the emotion motion means movement or the action that your body does your autonomic nervous system implements and so every time you have an emotion you have that em that emotional this autonomic nervous system part to it which essentially sends down signals to the gut, to other organs as well, to the heart, but the gut is particularly uh, interesting in this respect. And in the gut are the microbes. So the microbes get that signal as well. We know that, uh, for example, one autonomic nervous system mediator, neurotransmitter, norepinephrine, can act on microbes directly, changing their gene expression, their behavior, so every time you have this emotion, not only do you change your gut function and the environment in which the microbes live in, but you also directly talk to the microbes. And then the gut and the microbes with their metabolites send signals back to the brain, either through the vagus nerve or you know, through the circulation. And that combined experience, the, uh, the, the emotion, the, the, the action part, and the uh, emotional feeling part that's for both of these, you know, investigators and, and myself as well, believe that information is stored in these video clips in the brain um, or within the brain gut system. And whenever you make a decision later based on your gut feelings, your brain somehow can access that information instantaneously um, as opposed to making a rational decision using your prefrontal cortex, which is a much slower process. Now that theory has not been proven, you know, experimentally. I'm not exactly sure how you would do it in the humans, <laughs> but um, I think it makes a lot of sense. And it's obviously compatible with what we currently think about computers and, you know, rapid access to information without a slow system like our prefrontal cortex. What our modern computers and AI is doing is much more similar, I think, to this kind of biological rapid access to, to stored information. And the database for that is vast, starts probably during delivery, you know, the first experiences of the, the baby's brain and microbiome are probably stored there already. I think um, I know one of the things you touch on, and I, I think the field seeing more and more of this, is that not only then can our emotions um, you know, shape the gut and our responses, but they may be, you know, influencing, maybe not causing, but, you know, subtly nudging us um, in some of our behaviors. Could you talk a bit more about some of the behaviors? I, I know a lot of it's based on animals, but the, the gut microbiota seems to really strongly influence. Yeah, with the behaviors, it's this is one of those areas where it's hard to really <clears throat> find a correct translation because these experimental setups, you know, are so focused on they isolate everything else except that observed behavior. There's so many other things that happen in a human in a situation like that, and so many different influences from, from, from you know, from memory and from 
um, genetics. So there's, um, I mean, there's one example coming back to uh, to the GLP-1, to the satiety hormone. <clears throat> so as I said, the microbes play a big role in influencing the release of that hormone. And that hormone obviously um, shuts down our, our hunger feelings and changes the behavior, you stop eating. So that's a good example um, where that mechanism is is pretty strongly maintained. <clears throat> um, with the the other one, the the appetite hormone ghrelin, I've not followed that area as well. If 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 ghrelin release is in any way influenced by by microbes, wouldn't surprise me. Um, more complex behavior um, like the fight and flight response. I don't know <clears throat> if it would make sense for the microbes to play a role in this because that fight and flight response is triggered in response to external you know, influences. So it makes much more sense that the, the brain takes over that part of it. Um, complex emotions, uh, anger, fear, love, um, affection. <clears throat> I would not be surprised if, if there's a role of the, of the microbes, which we currently have not. They're very difficult experiments to do in humans, as, as you can imagine. But I would not be surprised that... Um, I mean, there's a sort of a connection, you know, people have written about this. So food intake and social connections. So when, when humans developed, um, you know, um, discovered the fire and developed cooking, it was always a communal affair, <clears throat> which is still present in, in many like Mediterranean countries. It's, and that's part of the health of that, of that diet. So this interaction of, of these social influences of, feeling well in, in a social setting and reinforcing that that social behavior, it's quite possible. I think that microbes do this in some form or other. You know, um, you, you could almost say, you know, speculate. Um, people that go on a Mediterranean diet, um, largely plant-based, um, that they are more prone to have these, these social behaviors than um, um, than you know, carnivores, for example. I mean, that's a pure speculation. I've, I, but it would make sense. There's clearly, in evolutionary terms, a link between social behavior, food intake, and the mic, the microbial composition in in that setting. Well, what um, you had mentioned earlier, right? Like, one, we know that what we eat has a drastic ability to change the um, ecosystem. The gut ecosystem. You, you know, you've mentioned a couple times during this conversation where things in the environment. Right. So and so it would make sense that, you know, shared food, shared environment, um, you know, we would be maybe not speaking the exact same, um, you know, microbiome language, but it would be more common. Right. Yes. And so that it would bring us closer together. So I think and that's, um, you know, coming back again to the Yanomami, I mean, <clears throat> it's a very social lifestyle. You know, they're always the family, extremely close ties. Um, they eat together. The um, the fathers play with their infants. You know, it's it's a, it's a pretty. Um, to what degree that is influenced by their unique microbiome that is so you know diverse and rich and has players in it that that we don't have anymore. If you ask yeah. the, the the likelihood of that, I would say it's it's more likely than not that this plays a role. Good. Now, uh, a couple of things I wanted to get to before we run out of time. One is I've seen a few different people in your field. It's more speculation, but that, like as an example, if we fed our gut microbiota more resistant starch, you know, one, we would expect that the populations that can consume that, and then the ones that can be cross-fed because of them would, you know, um, grow in abundance. And that then they may actually make us crave more resistant starch. Like they'll again through that bidirectional. Is there um, you know growing support for that type of idea that the gut microbiota strongly may um, influence foods that we would crave, but specifically to directly feed them? Yeah, this was brought up um, in a review article by somebody received a lot of attention, um, and. It was really mainly speculative. I would say there's, I think there's some some animal data from flies, from, from an animal of, of a fly. Um, I've not seen this um, really corroborated. Um, 
but certainly that again would would make sense so you build <clears throat> that with a healthy diet you build an ecosystem as you said you know it's not just it's it's different experts that break down the food and then the the, the next the next level that process the food that the initial microbes uh, the keystone species have pre-processed and that such a diverse microsystem would then um you know crave for 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 the kind of food to maintain it um unfortunately when you look at what has happened in the american diet uh, world that's really not happened so it's it's not if if, if anything um you know we we're, we're craving for food that's it's kind of genetically programmed, like high high caloric density foods, like sugar and 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 fat. Um, I'm not sure. I think this is more, let's say, genetically programmed phenomenon. Um, and even if the microbes don't like it, and they don't like it because they decrease in their diversity, and um, you know, all kinds of diseases develop. I don't think they can override that that genetic drive. You know that. When when you see something sugary, your rational mind shuts off because the basic evolutionary conserved instinct to get as much as you can when you can, you know, overrides it. Good. Well, in the time we have left, I wanted to focus more now on translational. You've had a lot of experience working with people. I know in your book there was certain foods and the gut health um, or gut mind connection that you mentioned that, um, you know, we might want to consider consuming less or avoiding. Can you talk a bit about some of those foods or, you know, food additives in your experience that, you know, might not be great ideas for us? Yeah. So, I mean, this has sort of become somewhat um, generally accepted um, knowledge now that a a Mediterranean style, traditional Mediterranean style diet um, is optimal for its benefits not just for a healthy individual, but also in in terms of um, being partially therapeutic for for, for many of these brain gut microbiome diseases, um, and so there's really nothing magic about the the the, the this this diet. It's seventy five percent plant based. Um, should be composed the plants and and, and the, the vegetables and the fruit should be composed. Of a large variety of foods, not always not just eating tomatoes. <clears throat> but there's also the other component um, that comes from the from the from the uh, fruits, the polyphenols, these large molecular structures that in in the past have been referred to as, as antioxidants, but that's actually the the least part that they do in terms of their health promotion. <clears throat> they also act as as prebiotics. Because they can't be absorbed intact, um, and the microbes both feed on them, but they also transform them into smaller molecules that are then absorbed and go through have health benefits throughout the body, um, brain, and heart, which has been confirmed in human studies. Um, then there's also all the the nuts and seeds, essentially um, also a component that has a lot of these polyphenols, but also the healthy fatty acids, um, and then there's the olive oil, um, you know, the extra virgin olive oil, also rich in in polyphenols. Um, to what degree each of these components is essential um, to create this health benefit of this 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 dietary style or, or pattern? I don't think it's really been, uh, you know, has been determined. It's similar to what we talked about earlier. It's it's probably a combinatorial effect of all of these. Um, in addition to the the you know intense social interactions that the Mediterranean countries have around food intake, which which may be there's a lot of talk recent recently about uh, social isolation. You know the, in the pandemic of, of social isolation in the U.S. and what health consequences that has. So the Mediterranean lifestyle is a way to provide both these social interactions and the the, the foods that we know are um, have multiple aspects of, of health promotion. It's not the modern Italian diet. So if you think if you go to an Italian restaurant um, every week that that is necessarily uh, a health promoting uh, um, 
activity because that the modern Italian diet and Greek diet and French diet have all moved away from a very small intake of red meat um, um, and have moved much more to the American style, you know, high, high fat, high red meat, high, higher processed food uh, style. So it's 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 really if you look at the elements that I mentioned, <clears throat> and you can find similar elements, for example, in traditional Asian cuisines, um, you know, pretty almost identical in their in their effectiveness. Um, and yeah, so I would say it's a it's a very it's a very simple guideline, you know. Um, so I've just recently written this this recipe book um it's it's not my forte to write recipe books <laughs> investigate and but, but i've been asked so many times by 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 patients and it's a it's a very simple way of highlighting these components and then the practical application what kind of food should you eat in order to get these these components that i that i told you it's Are not you it's it's not rocket science you know the science the science in this field is rocket science but to apply it to to maximize your health benefits is not rocket science you know i think we know a lot about this now what's one of the things i liked about um part of your emphasis in the book you know that like ecological thinking in terms of the gut ecosystem you know so i that's how i tend to think of it too like Let's think like a ecologist or think like a farmer, you know, maybe it might be a simpler analogy, but, um, you know, mentioned keystone species. So I think most of our audience would know in something like, you know, Yellowstone National Park, where they, you know, reintroduced the wolves, the keystone species that completely reshaped the ecosystem over several years. And that I, I know in your field, I see that idea of keystone species come out over and over again, that. Yes, there's these, you know, um, a thousand different species, but there's some that are the keystone species and the food they they thrive on, you know, may be more represented in a traditional Mediterranean diet because of the prebiotic-like compounds or prebiotic compounds, mm-hmm. but also the polyphenols that I think of as more prebiotic-like, but also are things that some keystone species thrive on. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, um, I mean, this is what what makes the the practical application so easy that you just have to provide these kind of foods and the system will respond to it like you don't have to engineer one particular microbe you say okay i don't have enough for that particular species or that if you provide the right food that species if it's still there you know if it's extinct already obviously it won't come back but there's something for example with a, a recent study with a, a probiotic intervention where they found like f- fermented foods, so people that ate a lot of fermented foods, they found that um, they showed the greatest effect on diversity and health of the ecosystem and decrease of inflammatory markers. But the most interesting part of this was that the microbes that were now detected in the gut of these people that ate more fermented food um, were not the microbes that came with the fermented food, but th- that food intake promoted the appearance of microbes that you know were not there before. Uh, the investigators were, were were not could not answer the question where they came from. Were they present in very low amounts already in the gut, or did they come from the outside? And did this this food intervention, dietary intervention, facilitate the migration of these of, of these microbes into the gut? So that's a good example. Um, you know how when you do a relatively general intervention that it would facilitate the growth of the ecosystem and its diversity and its its benefit i I think that's probably true about a lot of things um and then there are differences i mean, i I'm very interested in 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 this ecology concept as well and um you know i I just come back from a from a trip to um to a meeting in sao Paulo and they organized um, a one-week excursion to this um, Platanal area of, of Brazil in the middle of, of southern Brazil. And this is an area with the highest diversity of, of life uh, on, on, on the planet. But it's also heavily contested by 
um, interests, agricultural interests, to turn it into corn and soy production monocultures. So you see when you drive there, only separated by maybe half a mile, the jungle on one side and these endless uh, uh, you know, uh, fields of, of corn. And obviously in the cornfield, there's nothing left of any ecosystem because it's not only the monoculture, it's also they're being sprayed with with glyphosate and uh, you know herbicides and pesticides. And so any diversity has been eliminated. And then you go into the jungle side where some of these farmers actually develop ecotourism. And you see this amazing variety of, of animals from jaguars to caimans to, uh, you know, both in, in the water and in the air, the birds, and which is phenomenal. So that gives a good, good explanation of these extremes. I don't think our guts are in a condition as extreme as these monocultures of corn, but it's it's in a direction like that, you know, that we have been moving both in our outside ecology, macroecology, and also in our uh, internal ecology. Wow. Well, I think that's a great place to leave it off. And again, thank you for being here and for our audience. You know, a couple of the things that I would personally take away is just this understanding, right? That our, our gut's flexible. It's speaking with our brain. The exact language, mind speaking, might be slightly different than yours, but we're sharing the same, you know, words, neurotransmitters. And that some of the things that we can do to make a big impact are both um, like operating on the brain end, like like you said in some of the stories you shared, but then also you know paying attention to what we eat because um, we need nourishment, but so does our gut microbiota. So with that, if there's anything else you'd like to share with our audience, Dr. yeah. So, so, so I just want to want to mention a couple of things which make me very excited. I have to say I've really been as excited in my career. So there's three things that are happening in the next couple of months. So one is, as I said, you know, we're coming out with this with this recipe book called The Interconnected Plate. Um, the second one is um, the paperback version of The Mind-Gut Connection comes out on a new title, The Mind-Gut Immune Connection, and really presenting as a sequel to the first one, because some people, you know, I mean, this concept of the mind is still, I think, the most interesting to people. Um, and the third one is um, I'm also in the early stages of a developing a masterclass um, on this topic. So I've been invited to be part of that. Um, so very exciting. I think there's going to, oh, I forgot the last thing. So there will also be a um, a documentary, a PBS documentary in December on the same topic. So this year is definitely the year to to get the message out to to the lay public. That's fantastic. And for our audience, what's the best way if they want to um, follow you, learn more about what you're doing? Probably the simplest way is to go to my website, emronmayer.com. And um, that gives you options, sign up for the newsletter. Um, you know, this, this, they can look at the whole library of, of podcasts and uh, um Instagram posts and our newsletter. So that's probably the simplest way of doing it. Great. And for the, the listeners, um, it's we're I know we're launching a, a book club here come um up shortly. I'm not sure where it, this will air in that, but your is yours is the second book that we're covering. So um, oh, we'll great. be also sharing it with our audience that way. So okay, again, great. thank you for being with us today. Thank you. It was a great conversation. Really enjoyed it. This podcast is for informational purposes only. The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease, or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, or homeopathic supplement, and with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. 
Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship between you and any of the health professionals affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective.